Join the Wall Street Journal's Tech Live Cybersecurity on June 6, 2024, in New York City, to be at the forefront of shaping the future of cybersecurity and creating a more secure digital landscape. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. Coming up on Money Beat, the energy market's been a pretty optimistic place lately. Prices for oil have been steady. People think they're going higher. Are they, though? Are they too high as they are right now? We're going to talk about the energy market and all things related to it with Brian Singer from William Blair Funds. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Money Beat. Paul and Steve here in the studio from New York City, joined today by our uh, compatriot, Tim Puko. You've certainly heard his voice before. Tim, good to see you again. How are you doing? Good to see you guys. I'm doing very well. And on the phone, we have Brian Singer, who is a partner at William Blair Funds. Brian, it's good to have you on. How are you? Thank you. It's great to be on. I'm very very good. Uh, great. And, and look, what we want to talk about, and the reason we're having Brian on especially, uh, is we're going to take a look at the oil market. And the oil market, you know, it's, it's amazing. Looking at the chart, since December, I mean, it is practically flatlined oil. I mean, which, you know, can be a very volatile commodity, uh, has been really quiet. I mean, trading above $50, you know, roughly in a, a range around 53, call it if, if you'd like. And everyone thinks that it is going to go higher. And a year ago, it was a mess and everything so it seems to have turned around. Everyone's optimistic about the oil market again. Uh, and Brian, I want to discuss with you, that's why I wanted to bring you here. I mean, uh, is the market right to be that optimistic? Is that $53 number look good or bad to you and why? And and what are the ramifications that for the, the wider market? Sure. No, it doesn't seem that any real <laughs> expectation lasts for very long right. in this market, though. If you look back uh, to uh, prior to the last six months or so, and really sparked in August of 2015 when China uh, indicated a small devaluation, there really that really launched a lot of the volatility, and that was going on in the process of oil price declines and some technical issues that drove it down into early 2016. It's likely the case when you look back at that, that oil actually became a proxy, a real-time proxy for world growth. And that meant that oil became much more behavioral in nature. Every time there was a fear of growth, it'd go down. Every time there was uh, expectation for better growth, it would go up. So that contributed to volatility. That now is no longer the case. We're generally in an environment now where growth expectations are higher, and firmer, <laughs> and China's much much less on the on the picture here. Supply in the current environment can be put on or taken off the market much faster, and inventories are still relatively high and expect us to remain that way for the coming quarters. You've seen like since OPEC, you know, decided to you know pull back on production. One of the one of the big you know you've seen you've seen a lot of people you know basically come to the opinion that we're seeing oil the oil could go to sixty maybe seventy dollars. What you have a different perspective. You think the natural sort of the the fair value is more is closer to forty five dollars. Why is that? Sure. If you look at let's look closely at what the quota actually is. Um, first, the quota is set well below the current production or the then current production of all of OPEC. However, it was set very, very close 
to the actual production of the OPEC members that are under the quota. So it's not as astounding or, or a change in, in what was actually going on before. Second thing is the players, there's some interesting considerations of the players. First, Libya, Nigeria, Indonesia, they were all exempted. Saudi Arabia can cut production, but they have fiscal constraints, domestic fiscal constraints, that will preclude that from going too far. Venezuela, basically, the quota is just a trend line of, of where its production is declining anyway, so there's no great expectational change there. And Iraq's trying to actually ramp up its production at the same time they're being asked to cut. And those, those players, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq are quite important. Since the 70s, third, since the 70s, uh, our observation is that it just takes a few months after that quota to be put in place for the cheating to begin. And we don't really mm. see anything this time that would push it out too much further in the current, current quota and the current post-quota production environment. And then finally, OPEC isn't that important. It is not as important as it was before. They've had to pull in countries like Russia, and Russia did agree to a 300,000 barrel per day cut. But the thing you have to think, remember with Russia, it has every incentive to stay, say it will cut, and it has many incentives not to cut. When I put all of those together, from our perspective, the quota just doesn't seem as powerful as the market seems to be thinking it is right now. So let's say you're right and that OPEC cheats and U.S. shale comes on pretty strong. Even still, your expectation is a price somewhere uh, maybe a little bit north of $45. And that's certainly lower than where we are today, but you know it's, what, 10% lower? When we were, uh, I guess, when, when the markets were roiling, because of the of oil prices a year ago, it was at a time when oil prices had fallen fifty percent from i mean uh, really just a few months before and about seventy or eighty percent over the eighteen months prior so you know if if we're basically going from fifty three fifty five down to forty five i mean kind of we're still fairly range bound right and and the reason I ask is because i'm wondering like will the other markets care? What happens to the importance of oil prices in the broader market if, at worst, we're talking about maybe a 10% fall over a, a, a few months? Sure. I absolutely agree that the oil uh, market or the oil price in this market is range-bound. Uh, and our sense is that it's range-bound between about 40 and 50 and as it gets in the 50 to 60 area is where it comes into the high inventory supply and all of that. And when it gets down below 40, it really has to experience the type of technical factors that drove it down that far early in 2016. So that's the range we're looking at. What that means is that in this range and what we're looking at as it moves to the high end of the range and the low end of the range is to consider oil, again, in a very broad perspective, in an indirect way, being a growth proxy and an important aspect of all production in an economy. It's real-time, and it has broad influence. And that's something that we will build into on a global basis uh, across all of the markets. 
However, more directly, it has implications for our country positioning, sector positioning, and currency positioning. With country, for example, Hmm. we're focused on oil importers like India and and even China, the one that created the fear in, in the first place. With sector, we're looking at this point when we're in the higher end of the range, we have reduced the long position that we have because we feel that as that comes in, we'll be adding to the position as we get down lower in the range. And then finally with currency, generally speaking, uh, it's negative for the commodity currencies and we are short a number of those, for example, the Australian dollar, Canadian dollar, a number of the Asian currencies, and we've sold out of positions that we had in the Norwegian krona. So it does impact broadly across asset classes and currencies, and we're trying to take account of that in all of our positioning. All right. Let's uh, take a quick break here. We are talking with Brian Singer of William Blair Funds about oil prices, and we'll be back right after this. Join the Wall Street Journal in New York City on June 6, 2024, for the inaugural Tech Live Cybersecurity to network and hear from leading cybersecurity experts across a variety of sectors on how to combat cybersecurity threats, mitigate crippling attacks, and safeguard privacy on the individual and organizational level. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. Hi, this is Paul Gigo, host of the Potomac Watch podcast. Join me and my colleagues every week as we dissect all of the latest happenings in Washington. Check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts and become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google Play Music app. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome back to Money Beat. Hey, quick programming note. The Money Beat book club has not gone away. We will be coming back. We're, we're, we're trying to line up all our reporters and readers for next week. Lords of Finance is the book. Who is the author? I'm totally blanking. I should know this. I'm blanking now as she is. Just as you uh, said it's so it. embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, Lords of Finance is the book. And the- Really I think the last time I was here, I was wondering why you guys don't edit this podcast. I just want to reiterate those concerns. <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's a good point. Uh, because we, we, you know, what can I tell you? Uh, Lords of Finance, the author is Liaquat Ahmed. And we're actually going to have the author on. So by then, I will promise that I will be able to pronounce his name correctly. And, and Paul wasn't the one who set this up. And, and yeah, I and wasn't apologize, the one who set this up. I and apologize. Yeah. yeah. Hey, man, look, you know, like I said, we keep it real. Uh, we keep it real. We're not perfect here at the Money Beach <laughs> Show, but we try. Uh, we are speaking with Brian Singer of William Blair Funds who has put out uh, his assessment of the energy market. And, uh, you know, the bottom line, I guess, is that you're saying oil is a little bit overpriced at $53. But, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I drive. I don't know about you guys, you city folk, maybe not. But I mean, I drive and and I've been pretty used to to $2 and $20, $220 a gallon for gas now. It's pretty comfortable, Brian. But you know, I'm wondering at $45, say it does go down to 45 or even a little bit lower, what kind of squeeze that does that put on the energy sector? It really doesn't put a great squeeze on it. Mm-hmm. And the reason is the shale production that we have has relatively low break-evens. 
um, and we're already pulling from that production. The key is that as it gets above 45, it comes against pressure because the break-evens of crude oil, of of shale oil between that 50 and $60 barrel is phenomenal. We can really bring in about the U.S. alone about 15 million barrels per day of production at that price range. So there's a lot that we can do. Obviously, there'll still need to be more exploration, but that's a much shorter turnaround time of exploration and development than what you get for a deep water well or a standing well uh, in, a, in a traditional type of, of rig. That's, that's kind of where we see it as a ceiling and, and why we see it at this, as a ceiling as it comes down. One of the reasons why we don't think it'll be creating too much pressure, uh, especially in, in the U.S., is that there are a number of things going on. First, at that level, we already began to see some of the uh, prior shale uh, fracking wells opening up again, and some of the newer ones that had not been finished becoming finished and, and brought on market, and there's more to come there. So there's, that's still online uh, in terms of immediate production that we have in place. And then finally, one of the important things that has now been introduced to this environment is the regulatory situation in the United States, which is likely to reduce further production costs associated with these these uh, oil fracking uh, uh, wells and also likely to reduce some of the distribution costs. That takes the pressure off as well. It's not the oil price itself, but it's a, a factor that we have to take into consideration in the current environment. If I could interject here for a second, Brian, I, and, and maybe put you on the spot a little bit too, one thing I noticed that you did not write about is demand. We've been talking a lot about how producers respond at certain prices, but to Paul's point about you know where gasoline prices have been recently, uh, I think this time a year ago they were as low as a dollar sixty, uh, if I remember correctly. Certainly, many places around the country were getting prices that low. The average might have been slightly higher than that. Today's average is around two thirty. It's been there two thirty a gallon for for uh, regular gasoline at the pump. Uh, it's been there for I think a couple months now. Um, did you at all take a look at, at how at, at what demand might be, especially among U.S. consumers? Absolutely, U.S. consumers and global consumers. And at a very, very baseline level, we generally expect demand to move about in line with what we've talked about as production. It's When we do speak about demand, it is the case that already in the United States and globally, consumers of oil and consumers of refined product, for example, gasoline or diesel, have already modified their behaviors to reduce their demand at these higher prices. If they go higher, they probably won't be able to reduce it by much. On the other hand, their demand by much much more. On the other hand, it's also questionable whether or not they will increase the demand very much as oil prices decline, or energy, uh, as gasoline prices uh, decline from here. So we have looked at it, and in some sense, it's almost as if we're saying the response function is probably muted because of behavioral changes that have already occurred 
in the demand for some of these refined products. I think that's a really interesting point because you, the market has been flummoxed um, in in the past couple of weeks because of what's happening on the demand side. You know, demand um, by from U.S. drivers, and, and these are estimates from the EIA, so there's some question about how precise they are. But the, the best that we can tell in real time is that, that demand in January dropped near a 15-year low. Um, certainly supplies have surged during that same period. Um, there's, I, I think it's a 22-year record now in terms of how many days of demand that the amount of gasoline in stockpile can cover. Um, and, and you've seen... Uh, we, we've got some figures from Opus that show that, uh, that 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 did show up at gasoline stations, that they were selling considerably less gasoline during this January than a year ago. And there were concerns last summer that this would happen, that gasoline prices were going to rebound and that the rampant demand growth that we've seen during the era of low oil prices would not continue to keep pace and soak up a lot of this oil. So I'm wondering, like, from where you sit, how big of a risk do you, do you see this to the oil rally going forward, like this this idea that the U.S. consumer, the U.S. driver is not going to be there at the same force that they have been over the past year or so? That's a great question, and there are two things to, to bear in mind here. The first is on the demand side, and demand uh, can be volatile in this environment, and at the same time, it does not have to have a significant influence on price. The reason is that as you already mentioned, inventories are high. The number of days of inventory that we have available based on the demand is right now about 15% higher than yeah. it was in the early part of the, from 2000 up to about 2015. 15% higher in the U.S., 12% higher when you look at the entire OCD, OECD. That's a very nice cushion. And Bottom line, unlike the past, is that the supply is much more responsive, or as an economist would say, the supply has become more elastic. And for that reason, we shouldn't expect that type of huge uh, variation, even though demand might be going down or up fairly quickly. Would that be catastrophic or a huge risk to the oil markets if if this trend continues? Uh, The trend in? in? In demand and it being so weak. Oh, um, yeah, it probably would, but it probably won't. It won't do that. The and the reason is, rightly so, the market is coming to uh, become less concerned about growth in the immediate future, not just in the U.S. but globally. Um, and with those concerns, it, or with that observation, it, it's hard to really project a a catastrophic co- collapse. I think to have that type of thing, we really would need something much broader to happen to the economy that would influence that demand rather than something that's more isolated just to the demand for energy and energy products alone. Yeah. Uh, we have been speaking with Brian Singer, who is a partner at William Blair Funds, and we have to leave it there, Brian, uh, because we got to get out of the studio. We have to vacate for another another show. But thank you for giving us your time. We really appreciate it. Okay, thanks. And everyone else out there listening, thank you. We always appreciate it, and we'll catch up with you real soon. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.